the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Coming up, a conversation I had with Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. Putting a war into perspective. We're also going to remember Tim Keller, who passed away last week. He's gone home to his reward. Also want to give you a heads up for tomorrow's program. Pastor Rich Jones and Associate Pastor Matthew Dodds from Calvary Chapel Hillsboro will join me. Matthew Dodd is also the uh, executive director of Blessers of Israel, the podcast and news feed. It's a relatively new ministry. We're going to talk more about that. A great source for information on what's happening in light of what Scripture has to say. So looking forward to that conversation tomorrow. Well, we uh, had a radiothon a couple of days last week, so we're a little behind on some of the headlines. But I wanted to mention, if you hadn't uh, yet known, that voters in Portland soundly rejected the proposal on Tuesday that would have levied a new tax on county residents to pay for free lawyers for tenants evicted by their landlords. The ballot measure supported by dozens of tenants' rights and housing groups It would have created a 0.7% capital gains tax to provide people facing eviction with lawyers. About 82% of voters rejected that measure. Also, economists said Oregon's revenue forecast may be record-setting and much higher than previously expected. Expected Following the announcement, Governor Tina Kotek called for bold action and pushed for what she called priorities in the budget. The Office of Economic Analysis presented the latest revenue forecast on Wednesday of last week, projecting an additional nearly $2 billion in tax receipts. The governor said it's an opportunity to focus on priorities, but not everyone agrees. Oregon's latest revenue forecast was released Wednesday. It projected the personal kicker is up to a record setting five point five trillion rather billion dollars and the corporate kicker one point eight billion. The one point nine six billion dollars in revenue up from the March forecast is really good news for Oregonians. The governor said she reiterated her spending priorities. We now have an opportunity with that forecast to finish this season in a, a way that lifts up the top priorities of Oregonians or at least Oregon's politicians, housing and homelessness, making sure our mental health system works better for people no matter where they live in the state, and making sure our youngest students have the skills they need. Governor Kotek pushed for a $316 million to address homelessness, $1 billion to in bonding, rather, to build and preserve more affordable housing, $280 million to address behavioral health, and $120 million to improve early literacy and more. Some people said they don't agree spending more money is the solution. Homelessness and mental health, they're not doing it right, and uh, so it needs to go back in our hands because it's not being done correctly. That was a... Uh, Quote from an Oregon resident. Another, Joe Schmier, says, my opinion is I'd rather spend my money myself, so I'd like to have it come back to Oregonians. Well, in response, uh, Senate Republican leader Tim Knope, he released a statement saying the Oregon families are on track to receive the largest kicker return they have ever received. Republicans trust Oregonians with their tax refund, their children and their families. 
House Republican leader Vicki Breeze Iverson out of Prineville also responded in a statement and said, we expect the kicker to be rightfully returned into the hands of hardworking Oregonians as the law requires. As the uh, walkout by Senate Republicans continues, Governor Kotek says with about six weeks left in the session, she remains optimistic. Well, we'll see what happens next in the Oregon legislature. Meanwhile, while Portland is in for more sunshine and warm weather the rest of uh, the week, well, not quite as warm as it was earlier in the week, the city has broken a record for the most 90-degree days during the month of May. Portland International Airport reported a high temperature of 91 degrees on Wednesday, marking the fifth time that the city has hit 90 degrees or above this month. Before Wednesday, Portland had... uh, Never had more than four total 90 degree or hotter days in May. That's according to historic record of um, all reporting sites dating back to 1878. Well, over the weekend, the stretch of hot weather broke a record for the most consecutive 90 degree days recorded in PDX in May. That's last, not this weekend. Daily temperatures have been recorded at PDX since 1940. Uh, In short, this is unusual. Uh, the hottest May temperature on record at Portland International Airport, uh, Airport is 100 degrees, which was set in uh, on May 28th back in 1983. That date also stands as the earliest 100 degree temperature of the year on record. And again, that was back in 1983. While the debt ceiling showdown could result in a crucial win for the GOP, it could also result in Speaker McCarthy losing the speakership. Everything's on the table. The president and the speaker met earlier today. What came of it? Not altogether clear, but the negotiations will continue. A judge entered pleas of not guilty to all charges from Brian Kohlberger at his arraignment today, more than seven months after detectives alleged he fatally stabbed four University of Idaho undergrads in their off-campus home. Kohlberg's attorney said that they would be standing silent, so the judge entered the not guilty plea for the charge against Kohlberger. Standing silent means the defendant does not take a guilty or not guilty stance, but has the same outcome as pleading not guilty. Kohlberger, the 28-year-old criminology buff, accused of ambushing sleeping college students with a large knife in November, faces four charges of first-degree murder and another count of felony burglary in connection with the November 13th stabbing in 22, the prosecutor's office has 60 days to notify the defense if they're seeking the death penalty. The NAACP is um, has issued a formal travel advisory for the state of Florida, arguing the state under Governor DeSantis leadership has engaged in an all out attack on black Americans and other minority groups. And by the way, they are economically and in terms of small business doing much better in Florida than anywhere else in the country, as an aside. The NAACP went on to say Florida is openly hostile toward African-Americans, people of color, and LGBTQ plus individuals. I hate it when they lump us all together. Uh, The formal advisory states on the NAACP's website. They advise before traveling to Florida, please understand that the state of Florida devalues and marginalizes the contributions of and the challenges faced by African-Americans and other communities of color, end quote. The press release noted that the advisory was um, in direct response to the governor's aggressive attempts to end diversity, equity and inclusion programs in Florida schools, as if that's the only way to teach uh, history in the state. 
We need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with Benjamin Sledge, where cowards go to die. We'll also remember Tim Keller, who went home to be with Jesus last week. Well, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said in a new interview Sunday that migrants from the U.S.-Mexico border should be sent to every city throughout the entire country. We have 108,000 cities, villages, towns. If everyone takes a small portion of that and if it's coordinated at the border to ensure that those who are coming here to the country in a lawful manner is actually moved throughout the entire country, it is not a burden on one city. Well, the problem is we don't have we can't ensure that those coming are here lawfully. Adams said an appearance on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday. And the numbers need to be clear. We received over 70,000 migrant asylum seekers in our city. 42,000 are still in our care, he went on to say. If this is properly handled at the border level, this issue can be resolved while we finally get Congress, particularly the Republican Party, he could not resist saying, to deal with a comprehensive immigration policy. Well, amid reports at the White House and fellow Democrat Uh, Democrats, rather, Adams have butted heads over the migrant crisis, notably as the mayor of New York City stepped away from President Joe Biden's reelection advisory board. The CBS host Margaret Brennan on Sunday asked about whether, in Adams' view, the supposed $30 million in federal funding to address the influx into the Big Apple was enough. Adams said that New York City has already spent more than a billion dollars in addressing the migrant crisis and is projected to need more than four billion more in funding. Adams continued to uh, get pushback in courts to his administration's plan to bus hundreds of single male adult migrants upstate and possibly to Long Island to stay in hotels for months. Those municipalities, under mostly Republican leadership, say they lack the resources to deal with asylum seekers processed in the Big Apple as well. An ad from President Biden's 2020 campaign declaring the buck stops here is making the rounds on Twitter after the president said Sunday that he would be blameless if the U.S. defaults on its debt in the coming days. I've done my part, Biden said on Sunday in Japan when asked about the debt ceiling, later adding on the merits based on what I've offered, I would be blameless, end quote. But an ad from Biden's campaign in April of 2020 slammed then-President Donald Trump for comments he made shirking responsibility for multiple pitfalls during the COVID-19 pandemic. The buck stops here, the narrator said in the ad. Harry Truman said it. It means no excuses. It means taking responsibility, the ultimate responsibility for the biggest decisions in the world, end quote. President Biden wrote at the time, then candidate Biden, in a tweet that the office of the presidency comes with the ultimate responsibility for the biggest decisions in the world. Every great president throughout our history has met that duty with the leadership it demands. Donald Trump has not, he tweeted. Well, Biden argued on Sunday that certain MAGA Republicans, that's sort of the broad name applied to all Republicans, whether or not they ever did or do support Donald Trump, are seeking to cause a default in an effort to crash the economy ahead of Biden's reelection effort. He's suggesting this is purely political. The president made the claim during a news conference in Hiroshima, Japan, where he had traveled for meetings with G7 nations. Republicans in Congress forced Biden to the negotiating table after months of the White House, insisting there would be no debate over the issue. I've done my part, which was nothing, the president said, adding that it's time for the other side to move their team position because much of what they were proposing is simply, quite frankly, unacceptable. Well, House Republicans have passed a um, bill already to raise the debt ceiling, but to to slow the rate of growth in spending moving forward. 
and the speaker had tried for months to begin meeting with the president. The president declined. An op-ed for the New York Times warned readers on Saturday that if you're hearing about the border, it's more likely that someone is trying to scare you. Contributing opinion writer Megan Stack wrote the news surrounding the U.S.-Mexico border, particularly after the expiration of Title 42 policy, was due to the politicization rather than any security concerns. Here's the truth, she wrote. If you're hearing about the border, it's likely that somebody is trying to scare you. Broadly speaking, Republicans want you to be scared of immigrants and Democrats want you to be scared of Republicans. Our fixation on terrorists has faded, but we have retained as a legacy from that frightened era the habit of thinking about the border as a security risk that must be mastered, she wrote. Wow. Well, the dis- uh, the dis- dismal um, condition of the border uh, and concerns along uh, that border with many uh, which many saw as a provocative headline drew backlash on social media the op-ed is being mocked as dismissing border crisis as a fear-mongering tactic a transgender woman sued a new york city yoga studio on monday after being asked to exit the women's locker room at the studio and being told to use the men's facilities according to a court filing well the filing is the third gender identity discrimination lawsuit Uh, This particular individual has filed in 13 months, the New York Post reported. Similar incidents have emerged across the country. An 18-year-old transgender allegedly um, entered a women's shower area in a Wisconsin high school and showered alongside three high school girls who were allegedly showering after swimming in gym class. A letter sent by the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty in April claimed that the Sun Prairie Area School District in Wisconsin has not adequately addressed a violation of students' privacy rights after the transgender male uh, walked into a shower with four high school girls inside of it. Well, the letter alleges that the individual undressed fully, showered completely naked right next to one of the girls. He was initially turned toward the wall, but eventually turned and fully exposed himself to the four girls. The letter said well, the FBI improperly used warrantless searches, search powers rather against U.S. citizens more than 278,000 times in the year ending November of 2021. That's according to an unsealed foreign intelligence surveillance court filing. U.S. citizens covered in that improper effort included people involved in the Capitol riot in January of 2021, George Floyd protesters during the summer of 20, and donors to a failed congressional candidate, the filing said. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, allows government to conduct targeted surveillance of non-U.S. persons located abroad to acquire foreign intelligence information. When U.S. citizens are flagged as part of these investigations, the FBI takes over the process of querying them for possible security reasons. President Joe Biden announced that he would talk with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the phone before departing Hiroshima. He did that and then met again today. But he suggests that he would invoke the 14th Amendment to raise the debt ceiling if needed. He believes he has the authority. However, experts warn this would not hold up in court. McCarthy lashed out at Biden, saying that he was nothing but a puppet for Democrats who control things behind the scenes. The Republican insisted that the Dem-controlled White House is moving backward with negotiations, saying that Washington is sitting on $60 billion in unspent COVID funds, despite the pandemic being over. He went on to say President Biden doesn't think there is a single dollar of savings to be found in the federal government's budget. He'd rather be the first president in history to default on the debt than to risk upsetting the socialists uh, who are calling the shots for his party right now. 
Earlier this year, the Department of Agriculture proposed new nutrition requirements for school lunches, including a proposal that would curb the ability of participating schools to serve chocolate milk and other flavored milk products out of concern over high sugar content. Well, that didn't go over very well. Representatives Elise Stefanek, Glenn Thompson and Virginia Fox, all Republicans from New York, Pennsylvania and um, North Carolina, respectively, are blasting the administration and the USDA for proposing a ban on chocolate milk for elementary and middle school students, claiming now Joe Biden is embracing this far left radical proposal to ban chocolate milk. This is totally unacceptable, and I will do everything in my power to stop these efforts. That's a quote from Thompson. Daniel Penny, the Marine veteran unfairly charged by Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg's office, speaks out for the first time after putting a homeless man in a fatal chokehold. Penny said that the incident which killed Jordan Neely had nothing to do with race, but everything to do with a broken system that so desperately failed us. This had nothing to do with race, Penny said. I judge a person based on their character. I'm not a white supremacist, end quote. Well, the former Marine said he was deeply saddened by the tragic incident, but insisted he had every right to protect himself and others on the subway that day. President Joe Biden announced a new $375 million package of military aid to Ukraine on Sunday and told President Volodymyr Zelensky that the United States was doing all it could to strengthen Ukraine's defense for the war with Russia. Meeting with the Ukrainian leader on the sidelines of the G7 summit of world leaders in Hiroshima, Japan, President Biden said the military aid package included ammunition, artillery, armored vehicles and training. So far, the U.S. taxpayer has paid forty six point six billion dollars in weapons to Ukraine, twenty six point four billion dollars in financial aid and two point nine billion dollars in humanitarian help since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Senator John Thune plans to put his full endorsement behind Senator Tom Scott's bid for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. A source familiar uh, confirmed to The Hill as of the um, number two Senate Republican lawmaker. Thune is set to become the highest ranking congressional GOP leader to back Scott, who announced his candidacy earlier today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, a conversation I had with Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. The book is published by Regnery. And in the final segment of the 5 o'clock hour, Tim Keller remembered he's gone home to his reward. Tim Scott launched his GOP presidential campaign. South Carolina Republican Senator Scott uh, will announced his campaign to seek the GOP presidential nomination earlier today. With rumors of his intentions swirling for the past couple of months, those rumors became news as Scott officially filed paperwork on Friday. He now becomes the second South Carolinian to jump into the race following former Governor Nikki Haley. Over the weekend, Scott had also dropped a promotional video dubbed Simple Truths in which he criticized the current victim culture while promoting embracing personal responsibility. Last month, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition at the Department of Energy, Sam Brenton, a man who identifies as non-binary and was fired after he was caught stealing women's luggage, escaped jail time. Brenton, who was charged with felony theft and was facing up to a decade in prison and a $10,000 fine, instead received a relative slap on the wrist as the judge sentenced him to 100 days in, uh, 100 days in jail, suspended and ordered him to pay one victim $3,760, the value of the luggage stolen. 
But the luggage thief may not be so lucky. Last week, he was arrested in Maryland in connection to an investigation of luggage theft from Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport back in 2018. A judge ordered Brenton held in jail until he can be extradited to Virginia, where he will face another trial. He also faced similar charges in Minnesota for stealing luggage there. Last week, the District Court for Eastern California struck down state law AB 979, which had mandated that corporate boards contain a number of individuals who have designated racial, ethnic, and LGBTQ backgrounds. In its ruling, the court declared the law to be unconstitutional on its face and that it violated the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which forbids discrimination on racial grounds. The director of the Alliance for Fair Board Recruitment, Edward Blum, who raised the lawsuit, argued that racial diversity quotas are not only unconstitutional, they are immoral because they judge individuals based upon the color of their skin and not their merit. Had the law been allowed to remain, private and public companies whose boards fail to meet the racial and sexual identity quotas would have been subject to fines of $100,000 for the first violation and $300,000 for any subsequent violations. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy um, met today to salvage the debt limit deal. President Biden insists he's blameless if the U.S. defaults on the debt. Instead, it would be the MAGA Republicans' fault. Well, during remarks on the sidelines of its week of this week's G7 summit in Tokyo, the president sought to take credit for an alliance called the uh, Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, the Quad for short. But much like the corn pop story and Biden's other colorful stories, he can't take credit. Uh, He did not convince any of those countries to form the alliance. The Quad was first created after the late Shinzo Abe, then Prime Minister of Japan, initiated an alliance with the Prime Ministers of India, Australia, along with then-Vice President Dick Cheney, in 2007. In 2008, Australia withdrew from the Quad, putting the group out of commission until 2017. During the Asian summit that year, the four original countries, including the United States and then-President Donald Trump, revived the quadrilateral security dialogue and resumed joint exercises and work to push back on the Chinese Communist Party's malign activities in the region. So why does the president seem to think the Quad was recently created by him? Does he not realize the Quad was created more than 15 years ago and restarted in 2017? And did he not know that the Quad was the place when... um, was in place, rather, when he took office in 2021? Or does he just think the mainstream media and Americans will give him credit for what he is uh, trying to claim as the fruits of his own leadership without considering the facts in the situation? Joe Manchin says he's a climate moderate, but he just voted to confirm a radical energy nominee who wants to kill the coal industry. And Rome's iconic Trevi Fountain is the latest victim of climate activists. The latest stunt occurred in Rome on Sunday when activists or saboteurs poured diluted charcoal into the water of Rome's iconic Trevi Fountain, billed by some as the most famous fountain in the world. The vandals are from the group calling themselves the last generation, and they held up banners saying in Italian, we won't pay for fossil fuels and shouted, our country is dying. If it really is dying, I'm not sure how defacing the iconic uh, fountain is going to save it. Unfortunately, the attack isn't uh, an isolated incident. In October of 22, activists threw soup on a priceless Van Gogh painting and glued themselves to the wall with an oil-based product. And it's not only art that they uh, prey on. In April, protesters blocked the busy GW Parkway in Washington, D.C. However, it didn't end well for them, nor did it go well for some English protesters who tried to block a road but were instead dragged away by angry drivers. At some point, someone is uh, going to get seriously hurt. And the question is, what are these vandals trying to achieve? 
Their violent acts against centuries-old art and their disruption of people's lives will sway the opinions of exactly no one. Rather, it's more likely to sway many against their cause and make people hostile toward their organizations. Ultimately, this is not about the climate. It's about destroying Western civilization and anything uh, it has built. By the way, the water from the Trevi fountains, tons of it, gallons and gallons of it had to be uh, mitigated in some way. And the uh, the water was so seriously polluted, it had to be emptied out and displaced elsewhere. Over the past week, a sensational story has uh, torn through local and national media. A local nonprofit said homeless veterans under its care had been kicked out of upstate hotels to make room for migrants bussed from New York City. But the story has fallen apart over the past, um, well, couple of days, culminating Thursday evening with State Assemblyman Brian Marr, uh, who had been advocating for the veterans in national media and in the state legislature, denouncing it as false in a call with the Times Union. Marr said he was devastated and disheartened after a conversation with the CEO of the nonprofit earlier in the day revealed that the story wasn't true. He's calling for the organization to be investigated by the state attorney general's office and the Orange County district attorney. Most migrants are still caught and released into the U.S. after Title 42. And the State Department is offering counseling to misguided or rather misgendered, either would apply, employees triggered by an internal email pronoun debacle. Women refuse to stand at the winner's podium after a transgender cyclist finishes in first place in the women's category. And Christian author and famed pastor Tim Keller has died of pancreatic cancer. He was 72. More on that later in the program. On this day in history, 1955, Jack Benny completes his last live network radio show after a 23-year run. 1960, an earthquake of magnitude 9.5, the strongest ever measured, strikes southern Chile claiming about 1,655 lives. 1964, on this day in history, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, speaking at the University of Michigan, outlines the goals of his great society, saying that it rests on ambulance, rather abundance and liberty for all and demands an end to poverty and racial injustice. There were no ambulances involved. 1992, Johnny Carson hosts NBC Tonight Show for the final time after a 30-year reign. Jay Leno would take over as host three days later. 1998, a federal judge rules that Secret Service agents could be compelled to testify before a grand jury in the Monica Lewinsky investigation. 2001, on this day in history, Ford Motor Company says it plans to spend more than $2 billion to replace up to 13 million Firestone tires on its vehicles because the safety concerns 2011 or a tornado rather devastates joplin missouri with winds of up to 250 miles an hour claiming at least 159 lives and destroying about 8,000 homes and businesses 2014 the u.s house of representatives passes legislation to end the national security agency's bulk collection of american phone records however the usa freedom act would be later blocked in the senate 2017, a suicide bomber sets off an improvised explosive device that kills 22 people at the end of an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, England. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, President Trump demands that Democrats end what he calls their phony investigations as he delivers a fiery statement from the Rose Garden after cutting a meeting short with the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer. Well, once again, trying to appropriate the Bible for its own political purposes, this time for the help of artificial intelligence, 
PETA has come up with its own version of Genesis. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals last week published a rather milk toast rewrite of the book of Genesis entitled The Book, PETA's version of the creation story. The result is inherently offensive, occasionally a tad funny, but ultimately rather underwhelming. We'll talk more about it on another day, but I'm out of time. And we've got an interview coming up. Uh, up next, uh, my conversation with Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. And then later in the program, Tim Keller, pastor and uh, prolific author. He's uh, passed away at age 72. We'll look back on his life and legacy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Americans' veterans are rightly held up as heroes in our country's first line of defense. But how these men and women transition back to civilization, back to civilian life, is, well, too often overlooked or misunderstood. Well, in his latest book, Where Cowards Go to Die, with Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient Benjamin Sledge reveals the true horror of war from the front lines and the struggle many veterans face when reclaiming, well, life after battle. And while uh, serving a portion of his time under the Special Operations Command, he fought to keep his humanity amid the killing fields of Iraq and Afghanistan. But war never leaves its participants unscathed. Through brutally honest storytelling, where cowards go to die reveals an unflinchingly honest port- portrait rather, of war that few dare to tell, vividly capturing the reality of the men and women who learn to fight without remorse, love each other without restraint, and suffer the high cost of returning to a country they no longer feel like home in. Benjamin Sledge is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, serving most of his time under special operations. He is the recipient of a Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals for his actions overseas. Upon returning home for more, he began work in mental health and addiction recovery. He has authored several articles, two books. He lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado, with his wife and their two children, a daughter and a son. And we are just... Uh, Delighted to have you with us. Thank you, Benjamin Sledge. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on the show. You know, my first uh, instinct is to say thank you for your service. But reading your book, I feel it's more appropriate to say thank you for your sacrifice, because what you explain in your book really puts into perspective that it's not just a singular event that we're thanking you for. It's a service that really continues to uh, require a heavy cost to those who are engaged. So thank you for your sacrifice. Well, I very much appreciate your support. Well, let me ask you about the title of the book, Where Cowards Go to Die. It runs contrary to what most of us tend to just naturally think about those who choose to serve in our our nation. What motivated you to to come up with this title to describe not only your story, which is intensely personal, but a story that really reflects the experience of so many in our nation's armed forces? Right. Uh, you know, I, I started out with the end in mind before I even began writing the book. And really, it came down to my own struggles and the struggles of many veterans who fought in the, the longest running wars in the history of the United States. But less than 1% of the population served in Iraq and Afghanistan, which saw no end in sight for us. And um, what I discovered was, is as I was transitioning into the civilian world and, and trying to, to figure out who I was, what my identity was, what my purpose was, 
um, there was a lot of me that didn't want to confront the past pain, the trauma, the hardships, the the, the grotesque and, and uh, destruction that I saw like on the battlefield, and it was easier to run. And so the thing that I discovered was in order to really face and grow as a human being, I had to aptly kill the coward in me that wanted to stay safe. And, and that's like the flip side, honestly, of the human condition most times. It's when we refuse to give our lives in something greater, when we uh, don't sacrifice for other people, when we don't um, operate in compassion and humility, but instead embrace vice, um, we, we effectively die as cowards because we're unwilling to um, bleed the areas of our life that are, are actually killing us. And the, the opposite side, the flip side of that coin is when I went to combat, I had to learn how to sacrifice for something greater than myself, for the guys around me. And then when I came home, I had to, uh, again, confront who I was, what I was capable of, and and kill the coward in me that wanted to stay safe. And so exploring that through the lens of Iraq and Afghanistan, and then especially homecoming, which is missed in so many books in the aftermath mm-hmm. of, of 10 years and dealing with this, um, that that's really where the title came from. Is that the fault of the military not preparing um, warriors who are, by virtue of their decision to serve, um, are, are brave? Is it the fault of the military for not preparing you for that transition, or is it just inherent to the nature of the kind of engagement that you're coming out of, that this is something you have to to do on your own? Um, It's a little, it's it's layered. It's a layered response. So so let me explain that. Mm -hmm. There's definitely fault that lies on behalf of the military. It's kind of like once you leave the military, they're like, all right, good luck, Uh, you know, Go out and get them, Tiger. And, and it really doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And there's actually a 2012 study by Gibbons and colleagues where they looked at um, veterans. And they discovered that veterans who don't find a new mission, a new purpose, a new unit, a new affiliation, whether that be religious faith or uh, just you know, some place to connect with, uh, intramural sports, they will struggle the rest of their lives. And the big reason behind that is, is in the military, you have a mission, a purpose, a direction, you're told what to do. Uh, And then on top of that, you have this camaraderie, this brotherhood, this sisterhood, where people have your back and you have theirs and would gladly be willing to take a bullet for you. And then you enter kind of a, a different environment where those rules get thrown out the window. And as we've seen with the great resignation and everything that's going on in our nation, people got are tired of bosses trampling over them um, or trampling other employees, trampling over each other to get to the top. And so when you enter that workforce, it's, it's a culture shock. You're like, oh, my gosh, nobody has my back anymore. Um, and so some of that is society's fault. Some of that mm-hmm. is effectively the military's fault. So it's kind of a both-end answer. You write in your chapter, The Frayed Ends of Sanity, you take an 18-year-old kid and strip him of any identity he's ever had. You shave his head, take his clothes, and issue him fatigues so he looks like everyone else. You remind him that he's, and you are rather graphic, worthless uh, until he adapts to the harsh environment. Then you tell him his enemy is subhuman and longs to end his livelihood and freedom. You hand him a rifle and convince him death on the battlefield is glorious. When your friends die, you have... 
Um, uh, you harden further and swear vengeance. Soon, nothing matters except the man next to you and your rifle. And again, that's a perspective that those of us who've never been in the military haven't really been able to fully appreciate. And then to transition from that experience back home has to be far more significant than most of us um, would have thought. Yeah, it's, it's an extremely jarring experience uh, because what they do is they break you down and mold you into the image that they want, that of a warrior. Um, and a new identity is formed. And, and you often realize that there's a lot that goes in there that isn't necessarily, you know, they're, they're, they're doing it to condition you. And you realize some of it's just garbage. But this, the thing is, is everybody looks like one another. Everybody's uh, focused towards the same mission. Um, towards the same purpose. And uh, then you go overseas, right? And and you're in an environment where you're effectively dealing with the gross underbelly of human nature, war and mm-hmm. combat. And the public is so far removed from that, that when you come home, um, you know, it, in the longest running wars, like I said, you have most of the populace was was kind of checked out. War was just kind of this background noise, this this low thrum um, until it you know made the news cycle. And one minute you're overseas and you're literally on a flight. You're you're there in Iraq or Afghanistan, and then what the next you're home and you're there. You usually arrive during the holiday season or something's going on, and people are like, "Oh, it's pumpkin spice latte season," and you just had people trying to kill you, and then everybody else comes back and is like telling you to celebrate, and it's it's really kind of this culture shock and yeah. overload for you. And so out of that, um, you know, it, and it's funny, you bring up that line uh, that has been the most highlighted line by uh, early beta readers and, and other veterans uh, who have felt, a, you know, connection with that piece. They go, man, this is really profound because that's the way that I felt. Yeah, that's that's very descriptive. Now tell us a little bit about your early days in the global war on terror. What changed between Afghanistan and Iraq? Uh, so, I, you know, a little bit of background. I joined in 1999 for the college money um, and because I had a very long history of uh, a family in the military, tracing back as far as a general under Napoleon. So it just kind of runs in the blood. And uh, and then September 11th happened. And so Afghanistan, to me, initially was like kind of this uh, this is what I'm here for. The, you know, we we saw an attack on our country. We responded and we effectively took care of that within the first six months, really, uh, very much in the same manner that we did in the first Gulf War. But then we kind of lost the ability to provide a clear objective and goal as far as what we we're going to do. And our foreign policy just kind of became this massive debacle. And so we, we began to just kind of slap uh, lipstick on the pig of war. And, and it, when I was there, by the time I got there in 2003, it was starting to transition less of like, we're fighting Al Qaeda. They're kind of more over in Iraq right now, it, even though they were everywhere, the Taliban and Al Qaeda were still there. Uh, it became more about, okay, well, we have all these poppy fields and we have the Silk Road trade. We need to, and so the DEA was over there uh, dealing with like the drug trade. And then it transitioned to minerals and commodities. And Afghanistan is this mineral rich lithium environment. And we just, we kind of continued to change the narrative. And what we were sold initially. Uh, just really kind of sharply declined. And and that became very difficult for a lot of us to stomach without, you know, being in the military, having a clear objective and purpose. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what are we doing? Are we fighting? Are we 
Are we stabilizing this country? Are we protecting the Afghan people? And we just we didn't really know. And it confused so many of us. And then Iraq kind of became the same way. And when we left, um, all the progress that we fought for, um, especially while I was in Ramadi, just went to nothing when ISIS uh, reclaimed the ground. And then, you know, you look at the debacle of the withdrawal from mm. Afghanistan in August 2021, and many of us were left wondering, OK, what did we do for the last 20 years here? And uh, it, it, it was it was difficult to process that. I tell you what, I need to take a break. Hold that thought. We'll continue in just a few moments. Once again, we're talking with Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of a book that I would encourage you to read, Where Cowards Go to Die, if you want to really understand the cost of war to the individuals who fight it. We'll be back after news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Benjamin Sledge. He is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He served most of his time under special operations. He's the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Most recently, he's the author of Where Cowards go to die. Now, just before the break, I was asking you to tell us about your early days in the global war on terror, and you were talking about the changes between Afghan, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq from your vantage point there in in the, the, the theater of war. Certainly for those of us looking on or following on the news, uh, we experienced some frustration, but the level of frustration you must have had seeing things change and not having a clear objective, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to finish answering that question if you had wanted to add to it. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, obviously, we left behind many of the people that uh, supported us during yes. the Afghan war, um, our interpreters. And so I, I recently was working with an organization and um, working to get interpreters out of the country. And the, the special immigrant visa is just an absolute nightmare process for for our interpreters to get stateside. And these are men and women who risk their neck and their life. But um, one of the things that that was really profound is I asked one of the interpreters, I said, did what we do matter? You know, or did, did we help? And he there's, there's always a silver lining to everything. And one of the things that I, I do want to clarify is he said, I, I lived under the Taliban as a kid, and he said it was awful. He said, you know, women couldn't have uh, an education. Uh, they were batting zero, zero, zero for zero for that. And then, you know, suddenly you have these, these girls' schools built. Um, Kabul uh, absolutely explodes um, as far as, you know, um, literary and people thinking and coffee shops, uh, road, electricity, technology, he says. Uh, he said, but here's the thing. Uh, he said, in America, you give your kids 18 years under the roof, right? And he said, you gave us an additional two years um, to, to kind of figure stuff out. And he said, and we didn't stand up our, on our own and fight. And I think that's that's kind mm-hmm. of the gut punch for like a lot of us is it was like, man, we, we really worked so that you guys would stand up and take agency over your country and create it into whatever you wanted it to be. We don't want it to be America 2.0. We just want it to be what you guys desire of it. And and they just didn't. And that was I think that was really devastating for a lot of us um, just watching that happen. Mm. Yeah, I, I appreciate hearing his perspective, uh, having been left behind there and having lived 
uh, under the, the Taliban rule as it exists today. Now, you touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but one of the points of your book is transitioning away from a war zone and the tremendous um, cost to uh, making it possible to succeed in war and then transitioning um, to re-engage into society. Do you think civilians can help in part of that process to restore veterans? What do we need to know about that that might help us to be part of the solution rather than uh, either disconnected from the solution or part of the problem? Right. I I actually train a lot of organizations on this that that are um, civilian in nature but are looking to work with veterans. And one of the things that I, a story that I tell is when I got home from Iraq uh, in my late 20s, one of the things that helped, the very thing that helped me readjust was not other members of the military. It was two civilians. And people are shocked when they hear that. And one of the, the, the key components is, is this. When I, when I first returned home from Afghanistan, uh, I didn't want to become one of those vets that didn't talk about their experience. And so I started telling everything. The problem was, is I'm dealing with morally ambiguous situations. And like many first responders and doctors and uh, members of the military, we develop gallows humor uh, because mm-hmm. of the, the trauma and the hardship that we endure. And so immediately I began telling these stories and I'm like, and so this insurgent's head explodes. And I'm laughing about it, right? Because I, I don't know how to process that trauma. I don't know how to process what I've seen. And so it becomes this human defense mechanism uh, for, for many of us. And I can see the way that people become uncomfortable. It's not what they say. It's their body language. And it's, it's the fake smile or it's the shift in, in uncomfortable position. And it communicates to many veterans, you are a monster, um, in our minds. It's, it's not intentional on their behalf. They don't know how to do that uh, or, ha- or how they should respond, but that shut me down. And so I just, I never talked about war. And then I went to Iraq and, and I came home and I didn't talk about war for years and years and years and years. And really it was these two civilians who began to open up to me uh, and begin to share about things that they had gone through in their lives that were very difficult and very hard. One of one of my friends had gone through, uh, and I just met him, and he just began to open up because suffering is a universal language that we all speak. Our circumstances and situations may be different, but we all have something that we've been through that we can relate to. And so he he shared about how um, you know his parents had died in rapid succession within three months. His dad was an alcoholic, and he kind of loved and hated him. And then on top of that, his parents were hoarders. So he was dealing with like a lot of shame. His marriage was in in trouble. And so he was in counseling. And at the time I was like, oh, we don't do counseling. You know, we're strong military men. Um, And he really just changed my perspective. And as he began to open up to me, I became more comfortable opening up to him. The problem is is that everybody thinks that they can fix veterans by diving into their trauma first. And and they meet him and they're like, okay, tell me about these worst experiences of your life or your your killing and maiming or whatever it is, these hardships. And that's totally inappropriate. And yet we think it's okay to do to our veterans who come home from war, um, asking them absurd questions like, how many people did you kill? And I realized that people have, are curious by nature, but you're asking them about a a very traumatic incident. So the way that I I train um, civilians is I go, you are often the best line of defense and resource that we have 
because we want to tell our stories. We want you guys to understand. And yet we, we just feel alienated by like the body language or you expecting us to open up first when, when really we want you guys to build a, a common bridge between us first so that we feel safe and seen and heard before we get into kind of those, those dark parts of our life. And the more that um, you do this, the more that we're, we're gladly and happily will tell some of the things that we've been through. And as we, we begin to see, see how you respond and trust you, the more we begin to open up and it bridges the civilian soldier divide. Mm. So we sort of earn the right to bear some of the burden that you carry in the stories and the experiences that you've had. Absolutely. There's a story in the book about um, you getting injected. And this is really goes to the fact that uh, the the culture doesn't really understand military service in the first place. But uh, you talk about being injected in the face with Novocaine and then having everyone punch you as hard as possible in the face. That's just one example of military culture. (laughs) Can you help explain? (laughs) Yeah. um, So that was a a night in Iraq. And that's the thing. People don't. Military culture is totally absurd. It's like hyper violent at times and then also very compassionate and sensitive. You know, when your friends die, you're weeping and crying and holding and hugging one another. And, you know, the deepest um, secrets of their lives, you know, they're about their family life because you're, you're in this combat experience together and you're sharing everything. But you're also involved in like all these, you know, hijinks and shenanigans. And so. Um, one of my, uh, my corporal at the time, he, he was starting to fray and, uh, I was like, man, we need to have a little bit of fun. And so we, go, we go to this dentist's office cause we had made friends with the de- the dentist on base. You're going to have fun, go to the dentist's office. That's the first thing I think of. <laughs> We're going to have fun, go to the well, dentist's office. <laughs> they had, they had brought in some bootleg wine. So we're all like drinking a little bit of wine and then I'm, I'm sitting there and I, you know, I get these bad ideas and uh, I'm like, hey, do you guys have laughing gas at first? And they're like, no, that's under lock and key. I was like, what about Novocaine? And they're like, yeah. And uh, so eventually we just start, like start injecting each other in the mouth and then we, it turns into like Fight Club. And I'm like, I want you to punch me in the face as hard as you can. And they're like, OK, that sounds incredible. <laughs> and then. By the end of the night, you know, we're all throwing darts at each other. Um, so it's 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 kind of that level of just insanity that, that you deal with when you're in those environments and you, you end up doing dumb stuff to blow off steam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to take a break here at the top of the hour, but we'll continue our conversation. I want to talk a little bit about your mental health and how you have moved forward. And uh, your your faith journey as well. So we'll get into that when we return. Once again, we're talking. Let me make sure I put you on hold and don't hang up a second time. We're talking with Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. The book is published by Regnery. It'll be released on the 5th of July. And it's a helpful reminder and perhaps teacher to those of us who don't fully understand uh, what war is like for those who are actually in them and what it's like to try to transition back home to a place that may seem less familiar than it once did. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with author Benjamin Sledge. He is the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. It vividly captures the reality of the men and women who learn to fight without remorse, love each other without restraint, and suffer the high cost of returning to a country that no longer feels quite like home. 
It's a book that will give you a clear understanding of what it's like to be in war and what it's like to try to transition back into civilian uh, civilian life. Well, let me ask you, um, you uh, paint a picture of war that's unlike other memoirs. You you focus on mm-hmm. and reveal the darker side of combat and the brutal truth of how depraved men can act instead of solely a heroic and rated PG account. Why is it important for the civilians back home to better understand the nature of war as it actually exists, as opposed to the Hollywood version? Yeah, I I mean, we get sold a romanticized version. Uh, Pretty much everything. uh, (laughs) Yeah, and especially of combat. Like, it Mm -hmm. is, I mean, people's guts out on the ground, heads exploding, stuff like that. Like, that, I mean, the difficult part is, is, some of the movies do encapsulate this, but some, realistically, a lot of the books that are coming out right now about Afghanistan and Iraq are, are kind of broken in that respect. It's it's about the heroics and, uh, you know, the joke inside the book industry right now that we, we kind of tease about is if you're a Navy SEAL, you get a book deal, you know? <laughs> um, and so that's kind of what's what's come out. And a lot of us, uh, you know, we we were just, your regular soldiers who had to deal with life or death calls, uh, morally ambiguous situations. Do I, you know, shoot this woman or child? Um, you, you know, how do I uh, protect my family back home from the gross atrocities that I'm seeing? And and out of that, we we don't really talk about like what war costs in the long run of what's happened to our veterans. I mean, we have a astronomical. Um, suicide issue among our veterans. Uh, it was, you know, it was 22 a day at one point. Now it's 17.6. But even then, the, the VA didn't really start tracking it until the 2010s. So it, it could have been even higher. And one of the reasons why is we became institutionalized by um, these repeated back-to-back deployments with no uh, buy-in from the American populace, no draft. You had 0.86% serve uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years, uh, whereas in Vietnam, you had 7% of the population serve, and in World War II, you had 11% of the population. And, and like I told you earlier, war kind of became this background noise while everybody continued their lives. And we um, came home and really kind of struggled within that and I don't, I don't think you can paint a really cohesive picture of combat in the military without including the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I wanted to make it true to the, the, the language, the nature, the hijinks, like the, I explained with the dentist, <laughs> that, um, that really encapsulate the military so that those of us who felt alone um, by our experiences go, this, if you want to know more about me and I've never, you know, and I can't talk about it, then you need to read this book. Yeah. And so my hope is, is that ultimately it paints that cohesive picture and really gives our average veteran a voice. Uh, you write about your own decades long search for faith and how you found it through uh, the most unlikely of circumstances and your, your search for mental, um, mental health groundedness, if, if you will. Can you talk a little bit right. about your journey? Yeah. Um, so when I, I grew up in uh, Oklahoma in like the buckle of the Bible belt and uh, grew up just kind of this environment where like everybody was Christians, what you did if you wanted to have like a good business, 
And much of my upbringing in the 80s was very, very similar to like Footloose, you know, don't drink, don't dance kind of environment. So by like 17, I started getting exposed to like kind of these televangelist style preachers and was involved in like, um, you know, this like prosperity gospel where everyone's having mansions and stuff. And yet your average parishioner is really struggling to make ends meet. And I was just like, man, I think this is all a bunch of hogwash and poppycock. So I I quietly left the church. I just didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to have those conversations. And when I went to war, I really began to struggle with the human condition because what I saw, and we love to act, act enlightened in our modern era where we're like, oh, we're so enlightened. We're not as barbaric. And I'm like, really? We, we can destroy the entire world now, whereas we couldn't. And we literally have no idea why we would do that. Plus, we have drone strikes where you can kill entire groups of, of people with the push of a button from a Connex box in Nevada. You, you're telling me we're, we may be more advanced. We've just also figured out how to kill each other better. And, uh, and that seeing you know, the destruction of war and collateral damage uh, of human beings that were innocent really messed with me. And so I began to search out, like, what is the purpose of, like, the human existence? Um, and not like, you know, what's my purpose, but what's our purpose as homo sapiens? Like, uh, where are we supposed to build, cultivate, you know, the solar system or whatever? And so I searched, you know, throughout religious means and, um, I, you know, secular humanism. And finally, you know, when I got back from Iraq, I was just crumbling and falling apart because I, did, I didn't know how to deal with what I was going through and what my purpose, direction or meaning was, which is what many veterans uh, struggle with because they had that in the military. And eventually my uh, atheist buddy takes me to church of all places. And uh, I, I still have no idea how that happens. But um, there, I just, I really begin to hear a message that I never heard growing up, and it, it transformed my life. And then I had people who were actually Christian, not just in word, but in action, and mm-hmm. it, that blew me away. It was like the first time I actually met real Christians, and I was like, man, these people really care about other people. They care about the marginalized, the oppressed, um, but I thought, you know, because of what I had been a part of, I deserved to burn. And the the messages really just begin to sink in. And so I began, you know, reading a lot. I read philosophers um, ranging from, uh, you know, the, the theologian, great theologian and fantasy novel uh, writer of our time, C.S. Lewis, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is killed by the Nazis, to guys like uh, Luke Ferry, and um, who, who's a French philosopher, um, to, you know, the Stoics, uh, Epictetus, and uh, Marcus Aurelius. And and really, as I begin to kind of compile that and, and deal with my past, I realized that I had to confront not just the moral and the physical and the emotional things that I went through overseas, but also the existential, why am I here? And then the spiritual aspect of war. And this is the part that many people miss. War is a very, very spiritual experience, and people miss that. And I, you know, the best way I explain it is, is um, most of us believe inherently that we know what's going to happen after we die, uh, you know, based on our thought process. You know, for me, as a, as a Christian, it's like, okay, I go to heaven, spend eternity with Jesus kind of thing. Uh, for other people, it's nirvana and reincarnation. For other people, it's the great nothingness. But there is no formative consensus the board as far as, like, what happens with you di- when you die, and none of us really know. Here's the thing. 
you point an M4 carbine rifle at a man and you pull the trigger, you send him to the great unknown. And that's like playing God on some level. You have the power to protect life and to take it away. And there's something just inherently deeply spiritual about that. And so I had to, to really wrestle with these, with these emotions and, and uh, the spiritual aspects, the existential, the moral, uh, the philosophical. And, and when I was able to kind of land the plane, I found that uh, for me, I found Christianity and, and I realize it's not for everybody, but it was, uh, it was uh, emotionally uh, satisfying and intellectually stimulating for me. And so uh, it really being involved in that community um, just really kind of helped to reshape me. And then I, you know, got into counseling. I got into mental health work because I wanted to impact other veterans and have them search for, and find their meaning too. And, and not have an agenda as far as like, okay, you have to believe as I do, but um, how can I help you? Because my faith informs what I do. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Benjamin Sledge. He's the author of Where Cowards Go to Die. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, the book is published by Regnery. will be out and available for purchase on the 5th of July. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, my guest is uh, Benjamin Sledge. Now, this is such a fascinating account of life in the military, life after the military, and assimilating back into civilian life. What do you hope your readers will take away from a read of this book that tells a very um, uh, uh, clear and graphic look at what uh, our military men and women actually go through in order to preserve our freedom uh, and to serve their country. Uh, you know, it's funny. I've I've gotten that question. I think more than anything from you know other veterans. They're like, you know, what's was the purpose of writing this book? And for me, it's it's to give you the voice that you haven't had or the ability to explain things that you find difficult to talk about. And ultimately, for civilians to understand that, um, unfortunately, war is uh, an inevitable part of the human nature. It's It's been around for eons and thousands of years, and there's just something weird inside, you know, the human condition that, that pushes us. Um, this in this manner. And I want them to see the the astronomical cost yes. of what what really happens. And the, the fact, you know, that growing up, I, I, I would always quote, you know, that, oh, freedom isn't free. And I believed in this like jingoistic, nonsensical version of that. But as I come as I came to discover fighting overseas, I was like, man, it really isn't like for for everyone in America to stay at home to not have their sons and daughters drafted, um, to continue to enjoy their Starbucks seasons and um, just go about their day-to-day lives without a care in the world as far as the the wars. And, and this is the thing that we forget. We live in a democracy, so therefore we vote to put people in positions of power who will either justly or unjustly um, send young men and women from their country to die on, on the battlefield. And out of that, there has to be some sort of collective responsibility. And because, you know, if you live in any country in the world, you have to submit to their governing rules and bodies uh, based on the country that you that you live in, whether that's uh, a dictatorship or a democracy. And so there is kind of this collective 
um, responsibility that we all have. And, and I want to bridge, as I said earlier, that civilian soldier divide so that people have a very clear and concise picture of what happened the last 20 years and what it cost our veterans who endured the brunt of it. Do you think your experience is dramatically different from the experience of soldiers in World War II, for example? You write about your relationship, I I believe it's with your grandfather, uh, and the camaraderie Mm -hmm. that the two of you feel. Is the experience that you had in the theater of of war, the longest running war, has that made it dramatically different from what your grandfather, for example, and, and others in your family experienced? Or is it essentially the same experience with just some subtle differences in terms of where and what munitions and so on? Uh, I like to tell people all wars are the same and all wars are different. Um, war at its, its very basic level is, is you know, uh, men and women killing each other um, and fighting over, uh, you know, to gain ground. And so in some ways, our, our wars were very, very similar, uh, almost identical. It was, it was bizarre for me because my grandfather was, fought with the 82nd Airborne. And then that's who I was attached to when I first went into Afghanistan. He never talked about war. Um, the the one thing that he said when I got back home from Afghanistan before he died was he literally just looked at me and said, now you're a man and left it at that. And, and I think really, honestly, what he was saying is like, now you know what it's like to sacrifice. And now you know what like the killing mm-hmm. fields are like, um, because most of everybody else doesn't. But at the same time, you know, my grandfather um, and even my wife's uh, grandfather, they, they endured four years of war, not 20. And they came home and they had to get back to their lives. And you had much of the population that was there supporting that war effort. It was constantly on the news. It was before you went and saw a movie, they did war updates. It was in everybody's mind. People were working in factories. They were buying war bonds. So it, it was this collective consciousness of, okay, we, we have got to win this thing. Whereas we went into Afghanistan and we we're like, we got to win this thing. And then Iraq kicked off and it just, it, it just went on forever. And then everybody just kind of forgot about it until, you know, the withdrawal of Kabul. And I, and I think the thing that somewhat enraged me the most was when we left, all of a sudden people suddenly cared about the 13 service members that were killed, but they didn't give, mm. two, they, they didn't care at all about my best friend who died. Um, they didn't care about the other guys I knew that died. There was there was nobody putting out you know beers for them at all the restaurants and you know saying oh these these brave souls and I'm like what about my friends that endured the past 15 years what, where were you for them and that was very difficult and very hard to navigate through and so it was it was different because of the fact that there was just kind of a, a different mindset. Now, granted, I am not mad at the, the American populace at all, and I need to clarify that. I am so thankful for their support, and they have been unbelievably generous. But it's still, it's very difficult for a lot of us just because of the fact that we, we endured so much and was asked so much, and yet we still can't get accurate health care coverage by the Department of Veteran Affairs, it's it's a debacle. A lot of us are dying of cancers, um, even in my, inside my unit, um, because of the chemical exposures and the um, uh, burn pits that we endured overseas. That 
it, you know, we talk about taking care of our veterans and yet we come home and we're kind of some of the most messed up people um, because of what we experienced. And yet when you had World War II kick off, they, they created like all these new programs. It's like get a VA loan for a, for a home, you know, veterans preferences and, and stuff. And it feels like that just that that wasn't the case. And in many ways, um, you know, employers to some degree shied away from yeah. reservists and National mm-hmm. Guardsmen um, as far as hiring them because they knew their number could get punched any day. So it war was the same. War was different. Yeah. Well, I tell you, we're just we're out of time, but I, I appreciate your willingness to put pen to paper and to to share your experience and to give us a better appreciation for and understanding of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the sacrifice that you and others have made. And I would encourage our listeners who want to have a better understanding to read Where Cowards Go to Die. It's published by Regnery. Thank you so much. Again, Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know by now, Tim Keller, the New York City pastor who ministered to young urban professionals and in the process became a leading example of how to a winsome Christian witness could win the hearing of the gospel, even in unlikely places, died last Friday at age 72, three years after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He planted and grew a reformed evangelical congregation in Manhattan. He launched a church planting network. He co-founded the Gospel Coalition. He wrote multiple best-selling books about God, the gospel, and the Christian life. Keller said time and again, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Well, he was frequently accused, especially in his latter years, of cultural accommodation. He rejected culture war antagonism and his own uh, and the own the libs approach to evangelism. And people assumed him of uh, putting too much emphasis on relevance and watering down or even betraying the truth of Christianity out of a misplaced desire for social acceptance. But a frequent theme throughout his preaching and teaching was idolatry. He maintained that people are broken and they know that. But they haven't grasped that only Jesus can really fix them. Only God's grace can satisfy their deepest longing. Well, at his church in Manhattan, he told the nation's cultural elites that they worshipped false gods. We want to feel beautiful. We want to feel loved. We want to feel significant, he preached in 2009. And that's why we're working so hard, and that's the source of evil. Well, Keller explained to the New York Magazine that this was, in a way, an old-fashioned message about sin. But when many people hear sin, they only think of things like sex, drugs, and maybe stealing. The modern creative class that he was trying to reach, however, was um, beset by many more pernicious sins, jostling to uh, take the place of God's love in their lives. Well, the task of relevance was to identify the idols that had a hold on people's souls and then tell them that they could be free. The people of Manhattan had lived their whole lives with parents, music teachers, coaches, professors, and bosses telling them to do better, to be better, to try harder. Well, Keller reflected in 2021 to hear that he himself had met those demands for righteousness through the life and death of Jesus. And now there was no condemnation left for anyone who trusted in that righteousness. That was an amazingly freeing message, end quote. Well, Keller himself heard this message as a college student. At Bucknell University, he was born in September of 1950 in Allentown, Pennsylvania, to parents William and Louise Clement Keller. 
The family attended a Lutheran church, and young Timothy went to, to two years of confirmation classes, but he mostly learned that religion was about being nice. He went to college in 1968, got involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, in part because of the Christians there seemed to care about the civil rights movement. He soon became convinced that Christianity was true and devoured the works of British evangelicals, especially John Stott, F.F. Bruce, and C.S. Lewis. In later years, he was fond of calling Lewis his patron saint and quoting him on the reason to believe in God. Well, after graduating in 1972, he went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. There he met a student named Kathy Christie, who had come to faith through reading Lewis and actually corresponded with him up until his death when she was 13. Keller and Christie fell in love. They married right before graduation in 1975. Keller was ordained at the Presbyterian Church of America, a denomination with about 300 congregations that had been founded two years earlier in Birmingham, Alabama. He accepted a call to a church in Hopewell, Virginia, a town south of Richmond that was situated between a federal prison and the James River, which was polluted by the uh, Capone insecticide manufactured in Hopewell. As a new pastor starting at just 24 years old, he says he learned by making mistakes. Same as everyone else, he told World Magazine, my sermons were too long. My pastoral approaches to some people didn't work. I was sometimes too direct and sometimes not direct enough. I started new programs no one really wanted, but because the congregation was so supportive and loving, I was able to make those mistakes without anyone attacking me for them. Keller learned to shorten his sermons and not launch unwanted programs. And more importantly, I figured out how to ground his, uh, he figured out how to ground his pastoral work in trust. I learned not to build a ministry on leadership charisma, which I did not have anyway, or preaching skill, which wasn't so much there early on, but on loving people pastorally and repenting when I was in the wrong, he said. In a small town, people will follow you if you if they trust you, your character, personally, and to trust, and that trust, rather, has to be built in personal relationship. Well, after nine years, Keller left Virginia. He went back to Pennsylvania. He taught practical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, focusing especially on his doctoral dissertation topic, the ministry of deacons. He also started working for the PCA, helping with the denomination's church planting efforts. When he tried to recruit someone to start a church in New York City in 1989, he failed. Everyone has um, he reached out to turned him down. They thought it was a bad idea. Well, Keller and his wife planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan and started targeting these young people. He reflected on what it was like to move to New York at 40 and thought about how many young people had that same experience coming from all over the country. First of all, you are bombarded with people who are like you, only better. He said, you uh, you may be the best violinist in hot coffee, Texas, and you get off the train at Penn Station, and to your horror, there is somebody out there begging, playing the violin, and she's better than you. And so that makes you just dig down deeper and just practice, practice, practice. The second thing that happens to new arrivals in New York, Keller said, is that they are hit by a kind of diversity that could never experience outside of a major metropolis. The newcomers were surrounded every day by people who did not think like them. At the church, Keller did both. The core of the mission and his message was uh, the same as it had been in Hopewell, but he and his staff also worked to translate it to a different context. Their prime directive was church as usual will not work. And 
They uh, repeated over and over again that precedent means nothing. The church saw some success in the first decade. By the end of 1989, there was regular attendance of about 250. In the fall of 1990, the church was attracting 600, including more than a few non-believers who were just interested in what Keller had to say. The dramatic moment that brought Redeemer to national attention came after the terrorist attacks in 2001, destroying the World Trade Center. The following Sunday, more than 5,000 people showed up to church. They they uh, couldn't all fit in the space, so Keller promised to hold a second service. Hundreds came back, and by the time the city had returned to something approaching normal, Redeemer quickly, uh, the attendance had grown by about 800 Keller and the staff at Redeemer started helping other people who wanted to plant churches in urban environments. And by 2006, Redeemer had 16 daughter congregations within the PCA and helped about 50 other churches from many denominations get started in New York. He also coached urban pastors from Boston, Washington, D.C. to London and Amsterdam on how to contextualize the gospel in their cities. Fifty years from now, a Christianity Today editor wrote, If evangelical Christians are widely known for their love of cities, their commitment to mercy and justice, and their love of their neighbor, Tim Keller will be remembered as a pioneer of the new urban Christian. Not everyone agreed with that vision. Of course, there are always detractors. Keller is survived by his wife, Kathy, and their three sons, David, Michael, and Jonathan. He has gone on to his reward. Well, we are out of time. want to give you a heads up tomorrow. Looking forward to a lengthy conversation with Pastor Rich Jones and Associate Pastor Matthew Dodd uh, from Calvary Chapel, Hillsborough. Matthew Dodd is also Executive Director of Blessers of Israel, the podcast and news feed. We'll be talking about that new ministry when they join us on the program tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.